This is The Philanthropy Show, connecting and inspiring philanthropy. Welcome to The Philanthropy Show. I'm your host, Luann Saraga-Walters. This is kicking off year 2017 in a phenomenal way. Our first guest of the year is an amazing woman. I'm going to just briefly give you an introduction to Maggie Cook Garcia. Maggie was born and raised as an or in an orphanage with something like 200 brothers and sisters, and she's going to talk about that in Mexico. And a lot of the sustenance that they received as an orphanage came from philanthropists, which then greatly influenced her and her ability to then later in her life now act as her own philanthropist in a variety of ways. But her story is significant as well because all the things that she went through as a child and subsequently coming to the United States at age 19 and then becoming an entrepreneur and a very successful entrepreneur. Those of you who shop at Whole Foods or Walmart or other grocery stores may have already found her Maggie Salsa, her name brand Salsa, which was then purchased by Campbell's. And you know what's amazing about this woman who is also a unity minister, a teacher, and Sharon and I now call our new friend, is that she's had some remarkable life lessons that really bring out a new look um, that centers around the reason we've changed the philanthropy show a bit from being driven by nonprofits or around nonprofits to really being driven around what philanthropy is, which is the love of humanity. And Maggie, I could think of no one else to start off this year with other than you being such a prime example of someone who has a passion and a love for humanity. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you've got quite a story to tell and this is going to be a two-parter because we couldn't just have you on for a quickie 30 minutes and not get into, you know, just she came over a few weeks ago and we sat out on our lanai just talking for hours. Just an amazing experience. So let's start at the beginning and, and talk a little bit about your life growing from the orphanage to coming now to St. Pete, Florida. I know that's a lot, that's a big expanse, but give me yes. just a brief summary of that. Well, first of all, to start out is, my name is, my real name is Maria Magdalena de la Cruzco Garcia, and I go by Maggie Cook, and I was born and raised in an orphanage in Mexico, and I have, my parents adopted about 60 kids, and there's eight of us biological, so that was 68 of us. Wow. And then they took in over 200 kids that they supported, that they helped bring up and gave education and, and a life there, a better life than they had before. And you lived in that orphanage your entire childhood? Yes, up until I was 17, 18 years wow. old. But I, I experienced a lot of, um, it was in the mountains of Michoacan, Mexico, which is in the middle of nowhere. And, um, there was certainly a lot of poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember sometimes not having food for two up to three weeks. Wow. I became a hunter with my brothers. Mm -hmm. um, I remember not having clothes. I, I remember it was very, very tough um, living there where there were no adult supervision. It was just us, you know, we were paired up with an adult. Or when I grew up, I was paired up with a little kid. So we grew ourselves up and- wow. In the midst of a lot of chaos, sometimes uh, there were things that happened that uh, became greatest life life lessons for me, and I'm sure it became they became great life left lessons for everybody else that grew up there. This is not an easy life, and 
she's touched on a little bit of the poverty, not having food for a couple of weeks at a time. You'd mentioned, and Maggie is also an author of this book called Mindful Success, where she tells the story of growing up in this orphanage and the significant impact that that had. But there was also uh, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse happening at the same time yes. to all of the, a, a big majority of the children yes. at the orphanage mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. How did you maintain your not having food for weeks at a time? How was this orphanage actually funded uh, in Mexico? How did that work? Well, it worked in the, in the way that my, my father would get donations from U.S. supporters. We ne never got a donation from the government in Mexico, but he would get donations from food supporters. And your parents were both American. Yes. Yeah. They migrated to Mexico to to take on an orphanage okay. um, in 1977. Okay. And so, it, it was very tough. I mean, I think that my father tried to do the best that he could. Um, you could go crazy with that many kids sometimes. Mm. If I was a parent. And I saw that a lot, but he had a passion for helping people. And he was a doctor and a minister. He built 19 churches around, um, all around the place. And so he gave medical attention medications and he helped the poor. So a lot of the times when funds would come in, it would go out instead of in the family wow. first. And I heard a lot of arguments between him and my mother about hey, you got to take care of your family first but he had such a passion for the poverty deep, deep poverty that he saw mm -hmm. out in the world you you know you mentioned that you basically you, you children had to raise yourselves mm -hmm. the older would help the younger and then as they grew up they would help the younger mm -hmm. again and continuing on that process you also talked about something in your book about really recognizing at a young age i think you said that you were seven or eight years old, that you had an internal strength. Mm -hmm. You identified with that very early mm -hmm. on of knowing that you were going to survive and not just survive, but somehow thrive. Talk a little bit about that. Where did you connect with that so young? I was uh, coming out of my dad's clinic and the clinic was uh, stationed right at the gate and the house stationed about a quarter of a mile from the gate. And every Sunday he would get medical attention to the poor for free. And the very last patient that he got was a woman that came out and had no shoes. The kids were clothed, but very poor, he said to me as they were coming out. And he was, they were the last, and he, had, he was already with me on the parking lot. And he said, do you see these people? And he said, they're very poor. Look at, look at their sandals, the kids' sandals. Look at their hair, it's so thin. Look, look at how they're dressing. They don't have nothing. And he said, I never want you, he squeezed me my head he says I never want you to be like that hmm. and I had this overwhelming sensation of greatness and and something bigger that I it w wasn't there and all throughout my life I just wanted to get out of there and I wanted to be somebody something that 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 creates a, a positive future for people for wow. for decades to come right after he had that conversation with me he went over to the people and I heard him say here's a little bit of money for some tacos and here's a little bit of money for you to catch the bus to go back to your home mm -hmm. after he gave medical attention. But I remember actually looking up and feeling um, like a voice was telling me, you're gonna do something, mm -hmm. some great things. Wow. 
Wow, that's amazing. And, and you really have. Holding on to that strength must have been phenomenal. I want to quickly kind of, we're going to spend more time on this in upcoming segments, but go through how you came to the United States. You came mm -hmm. to play basketball, mm -hmm. which was a miracle story because you were meant to play basketball for the Mexican national team. Yes, in Mexico City. But mm -hmm. just a few days or weeks before, you broke your collarbone. Mm -hmm. Bummer. <laughs> there was, there was, but you didn't let that stop you. So no. what were you thinking at the time? Well, um, part of me being an adventurer and, and trying to think of ways to, to get out of there and to do something with my life was, you know, I got fell in love with basketball. Uh, we didn't have TV, but anytime when we went to town, when I went to school, if I saw a TV, I would turn it on Michael Jordan and he'd be making his moves and all these things. So I started playing on a dirt uh, court and at the orphanage, just, you know, blinding, blindfolding myself, practicing my dribbling and all that. And I became very good. I did that for about four or five hours a day. And I became very good that we started winning all the championships in junior high, high school. And we traveled all over, we won everything. And so I uh, caught the eye of the Mexican national team in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And they called my, my father. I still have the, their invitation. And they said, we would love for her to come and play in the tournament. And we've selected her. So I went to Mexico City, we, we met with the, uh, the person, and he said, we'll call you back. And I waited for about three months, and you know, a little bit like, what's going on? Then I went out one day and played football with my brothers, and Julio happened to ha pass me a huge, nice pass, and I was <laughs> catching in front of all the guys, and I was feeling good, but I fell, and I hit my shoulder, and I broke my collarbone. And uh, I ran to my dad, and he's a doctor, and he looked at me and he said, your dreams are over. Wow. But that moment, I truly took my hands like this. I didn't speak up because he's a big guy. But I said to myself, no, something better is going to happen. But I had that optimism wow. about anything bad that happened because I wanted to see the world differently. And through seeing the world differently, it just made me feel better. Even, even though in a, I was in a circumstance and situation where I experienced a lot of lack, I was able to bring myself to happiness through the thinking ahead of thinking there's something better. And I want to pause you on this because we're going to jump to break, but collect this before we go. Here is her father who is an inspiration to her dreams and setting forth saying, your dreams are over. And this young woman saying, no, there's going to be something better and find out what that is when we come back. It's said that a habit can be built in three weeks, so we've added a fourth week to anchor the experience. Over 28 days, you will do 28 different exercises designed to generate a greater awareness of all the good in your life. It might be within you, the value of other people, the blessings in your work, home, family, the good you're having flowing in your material life. Gratitude works in every area of our lives, and its benefits start immediately. We all have different areas that are easier for us to be more grateful for, and we have areas in our lives that sometimes we struggle to find any good. These exercises in this course are designed to cover a wide array of these areas, to give us practice in them all. And if you find that some are particularly challenging, be grateful. 
you've just discovered an area of potential growth. See how this works? So we will preview the exercises in short two to three minute videos to explain the intention behind each exercise and what each exercise can do to help change your life, create more peace, bring more joy, richer experiences, more meaningful relationships, and countless untold blessings into each and every day. Each day has a workout sheet in the resource section that you can download and print for the 28-day workout. To really benefit from this course, make it a personal commitment. Only you can benefit or not from being true to your daily exercises. Are you ready to unleash the power of gratitude in your life? Enroll today in the 28-day gratitude workout and start practicing exercises that make every day count. When we took a break, Maggie was just telling us about how she had dreams of playing basketball. The Mexican national team had accepted her, but she had just broken her collarbone. And her father, her, her mentor, this inspiration had said at the time, well, as her doctor and father, your dreams are over. But there was something inside of you that said, no, that's not. And so let's mm -hmm. skip then forward to not, a, not too long later, mm -hmm. you took a drive to... Uh, North Carolina well, th or? This is what happened. Um, From Mexico? Yes, so three days later. Three days, three days. The Mexican national team called and they said we want her to come play for us. And I couldn't go. And honestly, to, be, to tell you that I felt a little bit defeated, but I still held on to that belief that there was something better. And, and I don't know why, but I felt like it wasn't an accident. Mm -hmm. because I had traveled to Mexico City and I was there for five days and I started getting a sore throat headache from all the smog and all the wow. stuff so four months later while as I was healing and I was completely healed by four months my father uh, and my mother took a bus and they took all our 68 brothers and sisters on it, and they traveled from Mexico Michoacan Mexico all throughout the United States and we got invited to a picnic in West Virginia and in that picnic, um, I remember we were pulling up. He parked the bus very clearly. Picnic was going on. You know, there was a lot of people receiving us. And then there was a basketball court. It was at a school, a Catholic school, but it, the, it was a basketball outside. And it was really rugged, old, and there was a ball on the side of it. And me and my brothers were like, look, there's a basketball. So <laughs> we ran out and we just immediately started to play and we we're going back and forth, back and forth. And there happened to be the coach of the University of Charleston. Wow. And she saw me play, and I didn't know this. And she was asking people, who is that girl? So she went and found my dad, and he, and he said, I want her to come play for me on a scholarship. And that's how I came here. Mm -hmm. And immediately, I, I began studying English because I, had no, I didn't know any English and, uh, before going to college, and that's where I ended up, uh, ended up in the University of Charleston. Wow. playing basketball at age them. 19 not speaking any English but studying getting your degree in interior design yes mm -hmm. um, and then you took kind of a turn from interior design into mm -hmm. your your first well your first entrepreneurship mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about that how did this Maggie salsa come to be well when I graduated college I had something very powerful happen to me because uh, in experiencing defeat, even with my positivity, 
there was a, st a statistic that came out for the state of West Virginia that said that 95% of people that graduate with my degree either have to move out of state or can't find a job. And it struck me very hard because I didn't want to be a failure. I remembered then a very positive, uh, a very powerful thing that my father told me, and that was when I was younger. And he, I remember him very vividly telling me, you're never going to amount to anything mm -hmm. because I did something. I don't even remember what I did. Um, he told me, you're never going to amount within, uh, to anything. Uh, you're going to die in prison with AIDS or something like that. And I remember that, and I always remember that I did not want to be a failure. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and I couldn't find a job, I felt like I was a failure. And so I didn't reach out to anybody. Why? Because I didn't want my parents and my father to think that it was a fulfilled prophecy. Mm -hmm. Didn't reach out to anybody in Mexico, any friends that I had here, nobody. And so um, when that happened, I remember I was driving my station wagon around town and with my, all my stuff, because I had graduated college. My station wagon ended up breaking up. I, by the way, I was sleeping in it on, on parking lots. And so basically homeless. Yes. Wow. But one day I was going up a hill and my station wagon blows up. Well, the station wagon was nice because I set the, the seats down and I could sleep in the back like mm -hmm. a bed. Uh, but this day, this particular day, it blew up. And I literally took two big black bar garbage bags, loaded them onto my shoulder and walked away. I just left the car there. I mean, I didn't know what to do. And so I was in the streets for about three months. Wow. And it was around winter time. So in that period of time, there's a lady that used to work for the University of Charleston. She probably still does. And she happened to be walking down the street one day and she saw me and she says, Maggie, what are you doing? She says, you better get up. I have come, come with me. I got an extra room in my house. And so she got me out of homelessness. And uh, by the way, uh, the University of Charleston gave me the um, Gallery of Achievement Award and the Hall of Fame Award um, of the Hall of Fame uh, last year. And I found her oh, that's and awesome. she got to sit beside me oh, that's that I could cool. share that with her. Uh, so in that process of, of coming out of homelessness. I was living with her and one day there's this event for the West Virginia um, state and there's the salsa contest and some of my friends find out about it. They, re they find me and they said, there's a salsa contest. We remember how you used to make salsa in college. You should enter it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? No, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know. And so they signed me up. So I ended up going to it and I make the salsa and I blow everybody out of the water. I win first. <laughs> it's for, good stuff. It I, really is good salsa. <laughs> I win first place, and um, and everybody there's. I remember the event. It was colorful salsa music, you know, a lot of Mexican theme. Everybody's so happy, and everybody's surrounding my table. And when can we have this? When can we? You sell at the supermarkets, and uh, I remember telling people, I, I, well, I can't because I don't have any money. And there was a man that was standing nearby that I could remember feeling his energy and his presence. And I could remember feeling him looking at me. And I said to him, or he came to me and he said, you know, I, I see something in you. Hmm. And um, I just want you to know that he reached out his to his wallet, pulled out his wallet, and he had $800 
and he gave them to me. Wow. And he said, here's to start your business. Mm. But I give you this in one condition, and that someday that you pay it forward mm -hmm. as well. That's an amazing story. I, I love hearing. So let's put this into perspective. Just take a pause for one second about this incredible life who's sharing this story. Growing up in an orphanage, and the orphanage relied on donations from people. Her life has been formed in that process of relying on others to be able to help and to provide sustenance to you and your mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. And then coming into the United States, living for three months on the street. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then to have somebody just not even knowing you, but to give you that kind of yes. forward. So mm -hmm. there's a very clear pattern here of things happening and you seizing onto the moment of the good mm -hmm. to make it better. Mm -hmm. um, just to, to push this through a little bit further, Maggie Salsa was then born. Yes. Um, you got it into, I know there's, there's a lot of, the, I strongly recommend this book when she talks about how she actually began to, you began to build mm -hmm. the business mm -hmm. to get it finally into some chains. The mm -hmm. stories are fantastic, by the way, about how you dr driving all night with trucks that are falling down. I mean, it's just, it's crazy wild. This has got to be a movie someday. Your life has got to be a movie. But then going into, into Whole Foods, into Walmart, um, and here you have this incredibly productive company, Maggie Salsa, which then mm -hmm. Cam Campbell's purchased recently. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, but also getting into that giving back. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take you to be able to get to the point, as he said, pay it forward, mm -hmm. to be able to give back and talk? Mm -hmm. We're going to talk when we come back from the break, but I just want to have a, a quick overview of it, mm -hmm. um, of the philanthropic branch mm -hmm. of Maggie Salsa. Mm -hmm. What does that entail? Well, um, when I started the business, I didn't know just how to start it. Google was my main research source. So if there's anybody out there that think that they can't start a business, you can, even with nothing. And, um, but that was birthed, and I was donating money to my parents' organization, but it was not as much as I wanted to at that time. But I, I started a program called Pound for Pound. Mm -hmm. So for every pound of food that I sold, which was a pound of salsa, I would donate a pound of food to third world countries, mm -hmm. and starting with the orphanage. And it, and it, would, it could be dried beans, rice, um, anything mm -hmm. like that. And so I get a call from some, well, a message on Facebook, I believe, from some of the kids that lived in the orphanage then. And they say, Maggie, uh, we're not doing good. We've had um, sugar and, or lettuce and sugar to eat for an entire week. Wow. Can you help us? Wow. And I, it just struck me because whew, I remember, mm -hmm. and I was in a much better place, and I was able to, uh, to do something about it. So. That's where, where Pound for Pound started. And the reason I, and I loved it is because I was personally getting that money, you know, and going to the orphanage, going to Costco and buying all these bulk foods and filling up the storage room. Mm -hmm. I knew where that money was going and mm -hmm. I knew it was going directly to the kids that needed it. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I know I love hearing that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it was feasible is because if you buy grains and goods in Mexico, it's a lot cheaper than if you bought them here and then shipped them there. Okay. So that's how it works so well. 
That's a, that's a nice thing to know if you're interested in going that road. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about pound for pound and then some other uh, expressions of philanthropy that you've actually been through, both at the orphanage, through your time at college, and then also as we go. So more with Maggie Cook Garcia when we come back. Do you feel like you're on a hamster wheel of fundraising activities, trying to meet a goal that's always just out of reach? Then join us in Fundraising Success, the Complete Development Plan, a discussion-style course designed for both brand-new fundraisers and experienced professionals to help you create a development plan to increase your fundraising results. Select the fundraising activities that actually work for your organization. Set achievable financial goals and meaningful strategic goals. Create a useful timeline of fundraising activities and much more. If you're ready to create your complete development plan using resources you can use again and again to modify your plan annually, then enroll today and we'll see you in class. Enroll today at thephilanthropyshow.com. Welcome back to The Philanthropy Show. We're talking today with Maggie Cook-Garcia, who is just this incredibly phenomenal individual, one of my newer teachers that I'm very grateful that you came to the show today. And this is part one of a two-part um, talk with this amazing woman who's had quite a variety of life. And, and that whole idea of philanthropy being the love of humanity, that she was impacted by it as a child growing up, through college um, and the gifts and being able to give back through the very start of her business, as we talked about in the last segment with a gentleman just out of the blue, a stranger giving you $800 to start your business because he believed in the future and what the future held for you. And then to her passion to be able to help anyone and everyone. As an example, I want to start with, this wasn't something that um, because of her, the success of her business, she then just began. But you really started doing this at a young age mm -hmm. by taking care of, as a, being a leader, of a lot of the younger kids. Mm -hmm. And even those that were the same age mm -hmm. as you at the orphanage, looking up to you. There was an example of the realities that we don't have in America that, that Maggie had growing up. One of those realities that even when I lived in Texas, I would see the scorpions, but they were not a threat to my life as they were to hers, that oftentimes you said people would get stung and they would die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, patients that my dad took in that came in uh, foaming from the mouth. Uh. They were weakened, they were carried into the clinic, and immediately my dad would uh, do a, a system of IVs, four or five, and then a bunch of injections to, to get them back to normal, and they would walk out we had babies, I think we had a baby that didn't make it one time, uh, but we've had a lot of people that had come in through the, the clinic. And you the yourself, you said, I, I got stung <coughs> 11 different times. Mm -hmm. yes. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the story of a new adopted brother that had just come into the orphanage and your parents were off somewhere and he was stung and he was stung in the butt, which makes it a difficult treatment because you can't tie uh, shoestring or whatever around it to stop the blood flow, mm -hmm. but she really, I, I just want to read this clip because what you had to say about this was remarkable. So she took this young boy down to the river to, to sink him, to stand with him in the water, in the cold water, so that that would stop, lessen the flow. 
My idea was to stick most of his body permanently in the cold water to try to slow the poison from spreading. I had seen some of my father's patients almost die of a scorpion sting, and I was not going to let this happen to my newly adopted brother. He began to shake tremendously, and I wasn't sure if the poison was having an effect on him or if it was just the cold water. I was at peace as long as he didn't start foaming at the mouth. I will always remember that night. I kept telling him over and over again, believe that you are going to be okay. And he continuously replied, yes, as he steadily kept looking into my eyes. I had complete faith in what I was doing, and I knew if I kept his mind believing that he would be okay, mm-hmm. and he would be, and he was. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you mm-hmm. had that knowledge as a child mm-hmm. of putting your mind in mm-hmm. a place of knowing. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that? How do you, uh, how do you, how did you actually knew, know with him, for example, you're talking mm-hmm. about somebody's life. Mm-hmm. I, the thing is, I, I think that I come with this knowing of, uh, even when I was even younger, of, of things that I surprised myself, even now remembering what I did, but um, I think it's it had to do with my experiences there. Uh, but his name was uh, Eduardo, which we call him Lalo. And I think it had to do with the dreamer part of me. But even early on, I created, uh, and this is wonderful for kids, I created my own superhero. And it was me. It was nobody else. And through that creation of that superhero, I could wow. be the best and I could... Uh, I, I would go into the into the mountains for five days and nobody would notice me. And so in there, I would become anything that I could become and I would see the positivity about it and I would see empires growing and, and goodness coming from it. And, and so everything that I saw, I would, I, would, I would always see it as good and it's gonna get better. Mm. But you just have to trust me because it's something that I have in here and it's something that I can make it come forth. To, to, to help even the kids there. See, this is what strikes me about this is because in, in the United States and having worked now for a decade in the nonprofit community, there is so much lack. There is such a sense of lack that there are so many people to help. There is so much to do. And I love where you're coming from in seeing the good that can come mm-hmm. instead of in saying, there's so much, I don't know how I can even make a difference. Mm-hmm. But by saying, I'm going to, you, 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 you reverse that. You mm-hmm. don't pay attention to the, the flip side mm-hmm. of that lack. You say, okay, this is a circumstance. This is what is. Mm-hmm. How do you talk yourself in through that? I mean, do you, do you ever have moments when you're, you know, afraid or when you're mm-hmm. doubting ability? How do you? Oh, absolutely. I think we all do as human beings having a spiritual or spiritual being have, having a human experience. We all do have fears and, and doubts and, and things that happen to our lives, but those can be momentarily, you know, they can be very momentarily, but we all have a choice. Mm. And that choice is to say to myself, right now I choose to change how I feel because number one, you have a feeling, you have a thought. And when, once you can tweak that, to change that perspective, that reality to something better, you automatically start feeling better. Wow. And then if you go after it and after and after and grow it more and grow it and add to it and add to it and add to it, all of a sudden you just feel all elated and all happy and all at peace. And that's where you want to get. 
because the one thing that I've learned with my business experiences is the more that you focus on that, it's, it's like a miracle. It's like the law of attraction, they say. Mm -hmm. The more you focus and grow that part of you, the more goodness you begin to attract the right people, circumstances, and things to manifest into your life. And it's almost like it happens automatically. And, and to me, those are gifts. And I yeah. love receiving gifts. Even, my, even picking up my mail, even to this day, they're my gifts, <laughs> you know? So, I need to start looking at it that way. <laughs> because yes. sometimes I get some mail, I'm like, really? They sent me that again? <laughs> She's not just speaking words, and I want to emphasize that, but that, that words are very important because they formulate mm -hmm. who we are, and it's no wonder that you became a Unity Minister as well. That just makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I said that at the beginning of the show, but in addition to everything else she's done in her life, she is a Unity Minister as well. There's another story before I get to our last share for this part one of this, and that is talking about words and the impact that they're going to have, and you tell the story in your book about a young woman who had a, a lot of warts on her hands and your oh, dad yeah. had to burn them off. Yes and that you were just very convinced that this was never going to happen to you. I was and, and appalled by it. As I think any yes. young woman would be, like, mm -hmm. wow. Mm -hmm. And this is very important. So, so here are these two quotes. Um, I was so impacted by, by what I saw that I said to myself, I am never going to have warts. I was so certain of it. But what I didn't realize was that I had attached a tremendous amount of fear to that incident. It ends up that you ended up getting warts yes. and your dad had to burn them off. Yes, they'll have the scars from and it. You, okay, of where he, okay, yep. had to burn them off, wow. Mm -hmm. Everything that we say to ourselves or others, every suggestion is planted in the subconscious mind and becomes memories that eventually externalize in the body. So we must be aware of what we are telling ourselves. Your yes. word is the creating factor of your life and your thoughts become your deeply rooted beliefs that were once words. Mm -hmm. You saw yourself as a super, mm -hmm. super, super hero, hero. Yes. from the time you were a child. Mm -hmm. Just this past year, year and a half, you've had to put that zero superhero into action. Mm -hmm. Talk briefly about what was happening as some of the children at your orphanage were being abducted by some of the drug dealers there. What was going on with that? Well, one of the biggest nightmares that I've had up until I was in college was that uh, something happened to them and that I was only able to save three to five. And I was, there were recurring nightmares I had. Um, and because we live in the mountains in a very, very dangerous area. And there's a lot of cartel, drug cartel activity, and there's a lot of uh, uh, child abductions for um, how do you call it? Sex trafficking? Sex and trafficking, yeah. So I had those reoccurring nightmares, and so one day I dealt with it, and, and they were gone. Uh, and, and when you say that, you, you addressed it in a right, psychologically right, emotional right. part. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so in 2009, my father passed, and then my mother remarried to a man in West Virginia. So she left the kids, and my brother took over. And I took over with him, my brother Josue, which is much more younger than I am. Him and his wife took over. And one day, I'm doing a book signing somewhere for my new book, and I get a call from him, and he says, come immediately. Um, we just had word that 50, 50 people are coming to take the kids. And I immediately dropped everything. I left that evening. I don't know how I got a plane ticket to Mexico. I arrived at 5 a.m. 
I was in the orphanage, the first thing that I did was I uh, installed a very uh, expensive system, phone system, mm -hmm. because there's no coverage there unless you go to the top of a guava tree to make a call. So I installed a very expensive phone system and I started, um, I started the word, I start putting, because people talk in the communities around us and they're not that far, but they are there, people talk. And I went out and put out the word, listen, <laughs> I'm here, I've got weapons, which I did, we did, but we only had two. And this is because the 50 people that you heard were coming yes. were going to kidnap these kids for sex they wanted trafficking. A, well, we don't know why okay. why they were kidnapped, why. But they, they could have been, and that's a very real possibility. You know, so it, it could have been anything. Um, so I, I put out the word and and I let people know I got, I've got weapons and I have a, a nice system and the federales and the military are on our side. And the reason I said that, because it was true. I had gone into town, which there were barricades with the military. There was three cartels fighting in the area for, for territory. So the military had shown up. So there was barricades. I have pictures of all this stuff. There was barricades, entrance and exits of the cities. And I went to talk to the, the federales and the, uh, which we are very good friends with the comandante there now. And I spoke with the military and he says, well, now they're fleeing to the mountains and guess where we are? Mm -hmm. Right in the mountains. Mm -hmm. So I put out word and I had two guns. We had two guns. I had a 38 special and I had an, uh, a rifle, a chisa rifle, which a chisa means homemade in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So we made a homemade rifle, uh, 12 gauge. Wow. Wait, there's another gauge below that. Not the 12 gauge, the 12 gauge is, is the big bullet. It was a smaller bullet. So the moment that we hear that um, we put all the kids in one room, it must have been maybe like a 20 by 20 room. And I start sleeping outside in the concrete floor with my brother Jose, and I, I have pictures of this. I, and um, I take the 38 Special and he takes the rifle and we start sleeping outside. And anytime we heard anything, uh, one night the girls started screaming because it was not bedtime and they saw lights coming from down the hill. And we just ran there and shot the guns and we saw the lights leave. And um, how many nights was this? They, we, I was there for about 30 days. Sleeping and outside on the concrete at night with a yes, gun next to you. Yes. And then I noticed that they had a dog in a cage about uh, quite a distance away. She, it was a big cage, you know, but it was the clear metal. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing that if anything moved around us, she would bark. Mm -hmm. but she was very friendly to me and the dog's name was La Muñeca, which means the doll. So I had this idea of tying a rope around her neck and tying her, because I was exhausted, mm -hmm, okay. around my waist. So if anything should ha come in the night or happen, then she could shake me up and wake me up, or wake us up, and we'd be ready. Yes. We're gonna get to the rest of this story because I know that you're gonna wanna hear it, but I think that we need to save the outcome for this, which is also incredible, for part two. Of this of this show that we have with Maggie Cook so here she is for 30 days 30 nights sleeping on the concrete with a gun next to her and a rope tied around her waist onto a dog a makeshift leash in case the dog would wake up or would warn you basically of if anybody would come up 
because they're protecting the kids who are all in one room so that they're not abducted by these cartel lords. And when you talk about having a love for humanity, sometimes we like to, to cushion it with, well, we can give money, we can give time, we can give treasure. And there's also giving of ourselves, which is an amazing feat. And this from Maggie Cook Garcia, who is oh, a hero and a mentor and a friend. And so we will see you next time for part two, talking with Maggie Cook Garcia. See you then. Thank you.